welcome to the Trinity Reformed Church Podcast. This is Rich Lusk's talk from the Stronghold Conference put on by Trinity Reformed Church. The title of his talk is The Masculinity Crisis, Building a Better Patriarch, and a video version can be found on the Stronghold Conference YouTube channel. If you want to make sure you don't miss out on any of these talks as they come out each month, go to strongholdconference.com and sign up for the free newsletter. If you do, you'll get the talk sent straight to your inbox and be the first to know about Stronghold 2022. So make sure to check out strongholdconference.com and sign up for the free newsletter. Thanks. All right, so next on the stage, I'm going to bring up Pastor Rich Lusk. He is the pastor of Trinity Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. He has previously served at Auburn Avenue Presbyterian in Monroe, Louisiana, and Redeemer Presbyterian in Austin, Texas. He has written a number of position papers, articles, and book contributions, as well as Pato Faith a primer on the mystery of infant salvation and a handbook for covenant parents. He and his wife, Jenny, have four children. Rich has a BS from Auburn University and an MA from the University of Texas. Help me welcome Pastor Rich Lusk to the stage at this time. Am I on? Somebody asked me if I was going to be as funny as Foster. I said, I didn't really think he was that funny. It is great to be with you. It's great to do something so normal, isn't it? I mean, this feels normal to gather together, to fellowship, to hear God's word taught. Uh, it's great. Uh, I want to say I really appreciate Larson Hicks uh, for his work on this. I, my, so my church is the sponsoring church for the Serious Heat Church plant in Huntsville. And of course, Larson has been very instrumental in that. Larson's the only guy I know that could plant a church during a pandemic and uh, make it grow, and then turn around and host a conference like this, put a conference like this together, a much-needed conference like this. It's just, it's really, really impressive. Larson's been thanking everybody else. Let's thank Larson. <laughs> Manhood is caught as much as taught. And uh, simply being around men like those gathered here is a great way to absorb masculinity. Uh, now, my talk this morning is not going to be what I usually do. Usually, uh, what I like to do is uh, exegete a passage of Scripture. That's what's really in my wheelhouse to teach straight from the Word of God. Uh, instead, what I'm going to try to do here this morning is a piece of cultural and political analysis uh, now, of course, that's been done to death in all kinds of ways, I know, but I still want to try to summarize some things that I think will be helpful for us. But since I'm not going to be doing the exegesis, uh, what I want to do with you to start is give you my presuppositions for this talk. These are the biblical teachings that I think have to guide our cultural analysis. So first presupposition, men and women are made in God's image. Men and women are fallen. And in Christ, men and women are co-heirs together of salvation. Second presupposition, 
God made man the head of the male-female relationship. Uh, Bodhi actually gave us a, 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 such an articulate explanation of that uh, last night, man's headship, how it predates the fall. It's, it's rooted in God's creation design. Men were created to be heads, to be leaders, to be rulers. And that is what we sometimes call the patriarchy. Now, that may not be the best term to use. Uh, it may be a term that is off-putting to some people, but it's the term that has been used, and I think it's, I don't know of an alternative other than just to talk about headship, so we'll talk about the patriarchy too. But we can speak of patriarchy in two different senses, and this is really, really important. One sense of patriarchy is inescapable, and this is what Foster was talking about. It's, it's simply built into the way God made the world. Men lead, and men lead even when they abdicate. Male leadership is inescapable. So in that sense, that first sense of patriarchy, uh, it, it's simply the male rule that God established at creation that cannot change. It cannot be undone. Uh, it is what it is. God made man to image his fatherly rule. The cosmos is a patriarchy, and creation reflects that. That is symbolized by the rule of the man. But there's a second sense in which we can talk about the patriarchy, and that is the customs and traditions and the way of life that arise out of God's creational design, out of God's created order. Uh, and that kind of patriarchy uh, can be good or evil. That kind of patriarchy can be smashed in a certain kind of sense. Uh, it can be good or evil because the men who rule can be good or bad. It can be smashed if, we, if men are weakened and made effeminate. So that's the second presupposition, the patriarchy. Third presupposition, the creation mandate given in Genesis 1 has two sides to it. There are five verbs in that creation mandate in Genesis 1, to rule over the earth, to subdue it, to have dominion, to be fruitful, and to multiply. I break it down really into two, dominion and multiplication. That creation mandate belongs to the whole race. Men and women have to work together to fulfill it. Men and women need one another. We are not interchangeable, but we are interdependent. And so none of this going your own way kind of thing where you, you, you uh, fool yourself into thinking you don't need uh, the opposite gender. We share together in the creation mandate. God's will for the human race can only be fulfilled when men and women come together, when they marry, when they have children, and all those kinds of things happen. But within the human race and within the creation mandate, there is a division of labor. Men are primarily geared towards dominion, and women are primarily focused on multiplication. In other words, men are civilization makers, and women are homemakers. Now, that's a generalization, but it's a true generalization. Every person you've ever met was born of a woman. And most of the artifacts you see in the world, the cars, the computers, the skyscrapers, the roads, they were built by men. Men, by definition, are dominion takers. We're builders, we're fixers, we're inventors. We're the builders, fixers, inventors of the human race. It's just what we do as men. Men built civilization as a way of protecting and providing for women and children. You might say that civilization is the product of the patriarchy, that men have built civilization for the sake of women and children. Masculine energy is primarily expressed as men rule and subdue, as men further their, their dominion over the creation. 
feminine energy is primarily expressed as the woman nurtures and helps. So a man will build a house and a woman will turn it into a home. That's the pattern of the human race. Fourth presupposition. The world is a really messed up place. And it is our calling as Christian men to fix it. Are you with me on that? You with me? Okay, great. By God's grace, it is our job as Christian men to fix what has gone wrong. That's our call. Now, let me start with this. J. Gresham Machen, I hope that's a name that's familiar to you. Machen once said, the Christian cannot be satisfied so long as any human activity is either opposed to Christianity or out of all connection with Christianity. The Christian can't be satisfied so long as any human activity is opposed to Christianity or out of connection with Christianity. If that is true, then we Christians should be very dissatisfied people right now. Obviously, there is a lot in our culture that is opposed to or out of connection with the Christian faith. So much of our cultural, political, economic, artistic, and family life today is out of alignment with God's Word, with God's will. It's out of alignment with God's design. Indeed, I would say we're facing several crises. Our culture is drowning in crises. It seems like now it's just one crisis after another. But I believe that all of these crises really resolve into one crisis. There's one master crisis that stands behind all of them. The other crises that we see are really just symptoms of this deeper crisis. And that deeper crisis is the crisis of masculinity. The failure of men in America is at the heart of every crisis we face. Now, I'm not saying that men alone are to blame for these crises. Women must bear a great deal of blame as well. There is a femininity crisis uh, comparable to the masculinity crisis. If you were at TRC on Sunday, I spoke about that uh, in Sunday school, the, 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 the war on femininity, the, uh, the crisis of femininity. But God has ordained men as covenant heads. We are the covenantal heads, and so we are responsible for all of it. Let me show you how this works, how this plays out with some of these crises we are facing, how these cultural crises really resolve into a masculinity crisis. I'll give you five examples of this. We're facing a crisis of religious liberty. Our God-given rights are being threatened. And what's interesting is this threat doesn't come in the shape that we are used to it, or perhaps that we had prepared for. The threat really seems to come more from corporations than it does from the state. And I would say that threat is about to intensify. Because on Wednesday, guess what's going to happen? Big tech and big government are going to merge. And we've never seen anything quite like this happen. What do we do? It's going to take men who are courageous and savvy to stand up to these powers, find a way through this mess, and back to freedom. Again, this is different than anything we faced, uh, but this is something men must do. Men must lead the way. If tyranny is coming, it is always the calling of men to stand up to the tyranny. That's what men are called to do, stand up to tyrants. Now, I don't know exactly how that's going to work out. 
because of cancel culture and how our digital lives can be impacted by this. I, it may mean creating an alternative internet or uh, financial, uh, alternative financial institutions or alternative social media platforms. You know, imagine this a few years into the future. Uh, you know, nobody owns a car anymore. We're all on uh, Ubers uh, that the government helps to subsidize. And so you call it up on your phone one Sunday morning to take you to church as usual. And uh, the Uber shows up, and uh, let's say you live here in Huntsville, and you say, take me to Trinity Reformed Church. And this driverless Uber says back to you, we no longer deliver to that destination because they have been declared a hate group. What do you do? Well, you say, well, okay, maybe I can't get to church this week. I'll have to find something else. But at least I can give financially to my church. And so you go online to give. And you find out that your banking institution, your credit card company, no longer does business with Trinity Reformed Church because they've been declared a hate group. I told that, I, this is just an imaginary scenario I've concocted, but I don't think it's that far from what could happen in reality. I shared this with somebody the other day. I said, you know, imagine 10 years in the future this happens. And the response was, I don't think we're 10 years away from that. Okay. I, I don't know. I don't know what's coming. But whatever tyranny is out there on the horizon, it will be the job of Christian men to stand up to it. Second, we're facing a racial crisis. We constantly hear about racial issues. Whatever you think about the magnitude of the sin of racism, and I do think there is racism, and it's, it's a heinous sin, and uh, we ought to do all we can to oppose the sin of racism. Uh, people are sinners, and so there will always be racists in the world, but we need to uh, address that. But here's the thing. We are constantly inundated with this racial crisis that America is, at present, a, a racist nation, a nation given over to white supremacy. And indeed, we're told this is the biggest problem facing blacks in America, white supremacy. Okay. I would push back on that analysis of the situation. I actually think that's a red herring meant to distract us from the real issue. You know what the real issue is facing black America and actually many other uh, groups within our culture? The real issue is not white supremacy. It is fatherlessness. Family breakdown is the real problem. Now, people will point to disparate economic outcomes and they will say well clearly if this clearly must be due to racism uh, they'll, they'll point to that kind of thing we can lament the socioeconomic condition of many in our inner cities and we, we can and should seek to address that but the reality is there is no economic or political system that can bring prosperity to people groups whose family life is in shambles there's no economic system that can bring wealth and prosperity to a group of people who don't have stable marriages, stable family life. It simply cannot happen. You can tinker with the system all you want. You're still not going to get prosperity if the family is a mess. You just can't have it. So think about this. Think about the condition of the black family today. 70% plus of black children born out of wedlock. 50% plus grow, out without, grow up without any dad in the home. And kids who grow up without a male presence, without fatherly discipline, without a stable home life, without a mom and dad who love each other and have committed to each other in the covenant of marriage, they're far more likely to have bad life outcomes, far more likely if they are fatherless, grow up in a fatherless situation, far more likely to drop out of school, far more likely to get addicted to drugs, far more likely to live in poverty, far more likely to become criminals. 
And really, it's true for all races. Take, take the race issue out of it. Just look at fatherlessness. Any group that experiences fatherlessness is going to experience these kinds of outcomes. Fatherlessness is devastating. It's devastating for everyone. So we saw a lot of our cities over the course of the summer experience all kinds of riots. These were mostly peaceful protests, we were told again and again. Mostly peaceful. But what was really happening there? More than anything else, that was fatherlessness on display. You want to see what culture-wide fatherlessness looks like? Just look back at the images of those riots as these American cities were burning. That's what fatherlessness looks like. That's what, and, and that's my question when I see these people riding in the street. Where are the fathers? Where are the dads who will stand up and say, no, we're not going to do this? It's fatherlessness. When men do not step up and fulfill their fatherly responsibilities, society unravels, and that is what we are seeing. But nobody wants to talk about that. Everybody wants to talk about racism, not fatherlessness. I would say the race crisis is really a fatherhood crisis. And the fatherhood crisis is really a masculinity crisis. And again, I'm, I'm not denying the, the presence of racism, the heinous sin of racism. It is there. If you go look for it, uh, you're going to find it. But fatherlessness is doing far, far more damage to racial minorities. In fact, I would say that a young man growing up with a strong, masculine, fatherly presence in the home can withstand whatever racism comes his way. He's in a good position to withstand whatever kind of obstacles are put in his way based on race or anything else. Because if you've got a father in your corner, you can fight through all kinds of stuff. So the accusations of racism really mask what's actually going on. What we are facing is a fatherless crisis, which is really a masculinity crisis. Then we've got a leadership crisis. We simply do not have good leaders in our culture. Anybody want to argue to the contrary? I mean, anybody think that Gavin Newsom is a great leader? Or, or that Andrew Cuomo is a great leader? No, we just don't have great leadership in our culture. Our elites are not elite. Our experts are not experts. A lot of times they're fools. Why are we so devoid of leadership? I don't think the COVID crisis created the leadership problem. I think it exposed something that was already there. And what it exposed is that our leaders are indecisive, they're undisciplined, they're risk-averse, and they're incompetent, not to mention that the vast majority of them are just flat-out wicked. They don't have any of the ingredients that make for successful leadership. Why this lack of leadership? Well, again, God made men to be leaders. God made men to be leaders in home, church, and society, but men are failing. And we are failing because we have lost precisely those manly qualities that are the key ingredients to good leadership. Effeminate men cannot lead well, and our culture is awash in effeminacy. Effeminate men will evade responsibility and blame others for their problems. They're always looking for a scapegoat. They will avoid needed confrontations. They're going to be driven by their feelings rather than discipline and principle. Effeminate men are embarrassed to act in assertive ways. They don't want to be held responsible. They don't want to be held accountable for their decisions. And so they're prone to safetyism. Safetyism indeed has become the new idol of the moment, the fashionable idol uh, that's trending in our culture. 
We don't have great leaders because men today are soft and weak. They're addicted to cheap thrills and easy pleasures. And so we whine and complain, whereas men of past generations would have simply gotten to work. The leaders in our culture are a far cry from David and Solomon, from Ezra and Nehemiah, from Peter and Paul, from Luther and Calvin, from the men who fought the war for independence, from the men who fought in World War I and World War II. One reason our men are effeminate today is because masculinity has been so relentlessly attacked for so long. Now, at some point, our civilization will collapse. No civilization goes on forever. And when our civilization does finally collapse, and I'm not making any predictions here, it may be in five years, it may be in 500 years, I don't know. But when that collapse comes, what has been branded as toxic masculinity will suddenly be seen as necessary for survival. And those women who have talked about the, the, the horrors of toxic masculinity will be looking for one of those toxic masculine men to take care of them when that happens. Part of the problem is we've just gotten so comfortable. Our great prosperity has made us soft. And it's made masculinity an easy target. I think it was, was it Babylon B that ran the headline? Least masculine society in history has concerns about toxic masculinity. You know, that, that's, that's where we are. We have men today who are embarrassed by their own manhood. Have you noticed on commercials, like, like if you watch any TV, and, and I try not to other than, you know, the occasional ball game, but every single man on, it's, you know, it used to always be that the man was just this in, in, incompetent, bumbling moron, okay? But now they've gone one step further, and they've made him a, a, an effeminate, incompetent, bumbling moron. And so the, the, the men that you see on TV that are constantly paraded before us and before our young men are extremely effeminate. And it's not surprising that a lot of young men adopt those kind of effeminate mannerisms because they think that's, that's, how, I can show, that's how I can show the ladies I'm a safe man. That's how I can show I'm really no threat. I'm, no, I'm not one of those toxic masculine guys. And I'm seeing this happen. Maybe you are too with young men who are adopting effeminate behaviors seemingly on purpose to demonstrate that they aren't toxic. We've got men who are apologizing for the way God made them, apologizing for their manhood. We need to understand our leadership crisis is really a crisis of masculinity. Every so often, God tears down worlds, and he tears down worlds when good men refuse to lead and allow bad men to have their way, and that's what we're seeing. But every time a world gets torn down, God rebuilds a new world. And how does God rebuild that new world? Well, every single time, he does it through men. He does it through men who are willing to make sacrifices, work hard, take responsibility, and own their masculinity. Let me give you another example of this. We've got a crisis in what I'll call creation care or creation stewardship, or called a steward the creation. And this could very well come to a head with the so-called Green New Deal. Uh, the Green New Deal is really about a lot more than just caring for the environment. In fact, I would say it's got very little to do with actually caring for the environment. But, but that's, that's the ideology behind it, this kind of radical environmentalism. What does this radical environmentalism want from us? What does Greta Thunberg want from us? They want us to worship Mother Earth and sacrifice our economy and our well-being on her altar. That's what they want. The worship of Mother Earth, not the worship of our patriarch in heaven, but the worship of Mother Earth. 
Why do we have this crisis? We have this crisis because men have forgotten what they were made to do. Man was made to take dominion over the earth, starting with the Garden of Eden and working out from there until the whole creation has been transformed, not just into a Garden of Eden, but into the new Jerusalem, into the city of God. Man was made to rule and subdue the earth. Men, our bodies are built for this. Our brains are wired for it. We were made to transform the raw material of creation into a culture, into a civilization. Now, the radical environmental movement, what I find so interesting about it is that it is set in direct opposition to that creation mandate in Genesis chapter 1. The radical environmental movement attacks the woman's chief role as multiplier by falsely claiming that the world is overpopulated. The only reason the world seems overpopulated is because tyrannical governments keep their people from producing and, and getting the resources they need to survive. That's the only reason. And the radical environmental movement attacks man's chief role as ruler and subduer of the earth by falsely claiming that man's action on the creation makes it worse instead of better. The reality is creation flourishes much better when men are taking care of it, stewarding it, developing it. Man's not raping the earth, he's caring for the earth and cultivating the earth. So there are all these myths that are floating around related to the radical environmental movement. The reality is man's not some parasite destroying the creation as if the, the creation was good on its own and then man is bad. No, that, that's not the picture we have in Scripture at all. It's when man takes dominion and stewards the creation and develops the creation and harnesses all of those latent energies and powers God has built into the creation. That's when humans flourish. That's when the creation as a whole flourishes. And so what's the answer to radical environmentalism? It's masculinity. Masculine confidence in our call to transform the raw material of creation into civilization. It's knowing that's what God has called us to do. But what that means is this environmental crisis is really another crisis of masculinity. Take one more example of this. Our political and economic crisis. And here, I think the crisis is really brought on by the rise of socialism. More and more Americans believe socialism is the answer. And they are ready to reject free markets that have brought us so much prosperity. They are ready to reject free markets in favor of a government-managed economy that promises safety and security to all. That's, that's what's being uh, held out, and more and more people are supporting that kind of thing. What's interesting, and this, this was really borne out in voting patterns during the last election, what's interesting is how this, this support for socialism, how it breaks out in terms of the sexes, because actually men tend to view this very differently than women do. Uh, what's interesting is that women overwhelmingly prefer socialism, whereas men uh, generally still prefer the free market. Now, why is that? Why would women gravitate more towards socialism, a socialist economy, and men more towards, uh, towards a free market? Some of it may just be reflections of male and female nature. The women are nurturing, so they want to see everybody cared for. Men are entrepreneurial and risk-taking, so they want the free market. But I, I think there's something much deeper here going on. In, in fact, one thing that's interesting is that married women uh, are far less likely to uh, prefer socialism uh, compared to unmarried women and especially single moms. So why is this? Why do women tend to prefer socialism and men tend to prefer the free market? Well, 
women want to be provided for, and men know they need to be the providers. This is built into us. Women know they need to receive from men. They need to receive provision from men. They know they're the vulnerable ones who uh, can get pregnant and bear children and, and need to care for those children. They know they need to be provided for at some deep level. And men know instinctively they need to be the providers, that this is what God made them for, that this is their contribution. Now, the reality is many men are failing in their role as providers. And this is what we have to reckon with. This is what we have to see. The rise of socialism and the decline of masculinity go hand in hand. The rise of some form of statism and the decline of masculinity go hand in hand. Statism and masculinity are inversely related. You have strong men, you have a very small, limited state. When men are weak, when they're not fulfilling their roles, their obligations, their calling, the state tends to swell and take over more and more of life. More and more of life gets politicized and ruled by the state as the state seeks to make up the difference. Socialism, then, undermines man's role in society and in the family. Men should see socialism as a great threat, not just, say, to the economic well-being of their families or something like that. They should see socialism as an existential threat to their very masculinity, because it is. For socialism to really take root, manhood must be destroyed. A socialist economy is an anti-masculine economy. Socialism appeals to women who do not have reliable men to take care of them. Socialism appeals to weak men who reject their responsibilities. But strong men see the problem with it. They see what a terrible road it is to go down. Scripture shows us again and again from creation onward that men are made to be protectors and providers. That's the mantra of manhood. You want to know what a man is? It means you protect, you provide. That's the essence and heart of manhood. The man was to guard the garden. He was to be a protector in the garden. Genesis 2 says that. He was, Genesis 2.15. He was to guard and work the garden. He was to be a guardian, a protector. So when that lying serpent showed up inside the garden, you know, Adam should have reasoned. Well, if God's told me to guard the garden, that must mean there's going to be an intruder. So when that lying serpent showed up, what should Adam have done? He should have immediately crushed his head and put an end to the lies of the serpent right then and there. He should have put himself between the serpent and the bride instead of standing by off to the side watching the serpent attack and deceive his bride. He was to be a protector. He failed. Adam was effeminate when he should have been manly. He was a pacifist when he should have been violent. But men are also called to provide. And it's interesting how we see uh, the man's role of provider uh, work itself out in the early chapters of Genesis. Maybe Genesis 3 is the best place to look at this. In Genesis 3, this is where Adam and Eve fall into sin and, and the curses are handed out. And it's interesting that the man and the woman are cursed in sex specific ways. There's nothing androgynous about the curse. It lands on men and women in different ways. They're hit with the curse in their main areas of responsibility, right at the center of their vocation. So the woman is cursed in the realm of childbearing because that's central to who she is. She's a life giver and a nurturer, so this is where the curse falls on her. But where is the man cursed? He is cursed in his role as provider because that's central to who he is as a man. So now when he goes out to work, what's going to happen? When he goes out to subdue the earth, thorns and thistles are going to get in the way. 
thorns and thistles are going to make that much more difficult. Now, godly men will embrace their role as protector and provider no matter the difficulty. A godly man will provide what his family needs. If a man doesn't provide for his family, he's worse than an infidel. I don't know how you can be worse than an unbeliever, but that's what Paul says. A man is going to provide what his family needs. So if his family needs love, he's going to provide it. If his family needs discipline, he's going to provide it. If his family needs structure and leadership and vision, he's going to provide all those things. If his family needs financially, which it will, he's going to provide that too. And the man's role in the family is, in a fundamental sense, irreplaceable. Or when it gets replaced, things really go wrong. Because, see, what's happening with socialism, socialism seeks to replace the man with the state. That's what it's all about. When men fail, when they do not fight through the thorns and thistles to provide for their families, what do women do? They start to look to Caesar as provider. And the state becomes a surrogate husband and father. Women effectively marry themselves off to Caesar. Caesar becomes the new husband. Caesar becomes the new father figure. Caesar becomes the provider. When men abdicate their role, women will vote for a government that performs that role in their place. When government puts itself forward as an alternative source of provision to women and children, as has been happening uh, since the rise of the welfare state, since the welfare state began to be implemented, especially since the mid-1960s, what happens? The government is communicating to fathers, you are expendable. We don't need you. Your family doesn't need you. We can provide for the woman and for the children. Your role is expendable. The more financial support the state provides for women and children, the more marginalized fathers become. Women obviously have a unique and irreplaceable role in the family because they give birth. Nobody else can do that. But the man's role can be supplanted, and the government has been all too happy to do that. And so we've got welfare laws undermining a man's calling to provide for his family. We've got gun control laws undermining a man's call to protect his family. And really, this is, this is what socialism has been all about. This is what feminism really has been all about. Socialism and feminism go hand in hand. It's not at all surprising that we had uh, the rise of the welfare state right along with the sexual revolution because both have that same presupposition. Feminism plays right into the hands of socialism and statism. Both, in a sense you could say, are about weakening the man and therefore weakening the family. So the only way to push back against rising socialism is to have strong marriages and strong families, and that can only happen if you have strong men. Governments that want to exercise tyranny over their people look for ways to weaken the family, and usually it starts with weakening men, and that's what we've seen. The fall of masculinity and the rise of socialism go hand in hand. Let me give you a couple anecdotes here before we move on. Uh, I got to know a man uh, who brought his family over to, uh, to the U.S. to work. Uh, he came from one of Europe's more socialized nations. And uh, he's a very smart man, very good at his job. That's why they were willing to pay for him to come over here and, and, and do it and, and pay for his family to live over here. So no question about uh, how smart he was or capable he was. But as I got to know him, it, it really struck me how incompetent he was compared to most American men I know. I mean, most American men I know, of course, are conservative men. They're not ashamed or embarrassed of their masculinity. 
But this man who had come over from a socialized nation in Europe, he had no sense of how to work with his hands, uh, no sense of how to take on a do-it-yourself project, no sense of how to save or invest for himself or his family's future. Couldn't even change a flat tire. He was helpless, dependent. If somebody else could do something for him outside of you know, his job that he had, outside of that little niche, he was going to let them do it. And I know that that's just an anecdote, and the plural of anecdote is not data. You know, I, I realize you can only draw so much from one story. But I've seen this kind of thing again and again, and it leads me to this conclusion. Socialism fosters effeminacy in man, in men. Socialism feminizes men. About that same time I was getting to know him, I was doing a lot of reading about uh, World War II. And uh, it's really interesting reading about American soldiers who fought in World War II. I think this is from Stephen Ambrose's book, Citizen Soldiers. I'm not sure of that. I, I think that's the book where you had citizen soldiers. I mean, who were the men who went and fought World War II for America? They were factory workers and farm boys, and you know, they went off to, to Europe to fight the Nazis. But anyway, uh, he described how in the American army, when a piece of equipment broke down, like say a tank or a jeep, the American soldiers would typically improvise and fix it. They would figure out a way to get it working again. By contrast, the Russian and German soldiers would simply leave their broken machinery there and go on without it. They would leave it behind. Okay? And then that's one of the reasons why we won the war. The American farmer made a great soldier because he was used to doing things for himself. He said, if there's a problem, I'm going to solve it. He was resourceful, independent, innovative. He wasn't going to let somebody else do something for him if he could do it for himself. Now, where are those kinds of men today? Why do we have a political and economic crisis on our hands? Why do we have rising socialism? That's because we have a masculinity crisis. Again, socialism is rising because masculinity is falling. It's that simple. So what have we seen here? You know, it does feel like we're in the, in the middle of many different crises, but at root, uh, I hope you see now, they're really just one crisis. It is the crisis of masculinity. These things have happened because men have forgotten God. And in forgetting God, we have forgotten how to be men. You need to understand, men, the culture is trying to castrate you. The culture is trying to castrate you. And it's your job to make sure it doesn't happen. That you don't let the culture neuter you. That's your job. The culture wants to smash the patriarchy. Now, obviously, in one sense, the patriarchy can't be smashed. It's, it's just built into creation. It, it is what it is. But there's another sense in which it can be smashed. And they want to smash the patriarchy because they want to smash manhood. And we can't let that happen to us. We can't allow ourselves to be among those men who get smashed, who have their masculinity taken from them. Again, far too many men today are apologetic for being men. They're embarrassed by their manhood. They are full of self-loathing. They're not comfortable in their own masculine skin. And we have to make our churches places where boys are being discipled, where boys are being fathered by their own biological fathers and by others, other men in the church, where boys are being fathered so they can grow into manhood themselves. How does a boy become a man? Through a father. That's how it happens. That's what we've got to see happen. You know, in a lot of ways, this is a very hard time to be a man. Now, it's also a great time to be a man because there are all kinds of opportunities, but it's hard because manhood has been so pathologized. 
So men, look around this room right here. Look around this room right now. And you see these other men gathered here? You need to know you are not alone. You are not alone in your quest for real, creational, biblical masculinity. We are all in this together, and the world's not going to do anything to encourage us in that. Just the opposite. So we've got to encourage one another and spur one another on to greater and more faithful expressions of biblical masculinity. We're fighting the same battles against the same enemies. We need to understand we're all in it together. We are in this together. And I would say, again, just being around men like those gathered here is going to make you a better man. You need a tribe of men. You need a group of men to be around who can help you grow in your masculinity. Because, again, the culture's not going to do this. Okay, a hundred years ago, the culture did that for you. The culture taught a boy how to be a man effectively. There wasn't any question. You didn't need books or websites to tell you how to be a man. Or for that matter, you probably didn't need a book to tell you how to be married because you just knew it was built into society and culture. Just, those things were just in your bones. But now we have squandered that knowledge. We don't know how to be men. We don't know how to have a happy marriage. We, we, we need all the help we can get. Let's help one another. Because far too many men have capitulated to the effeminacy of our age. It's what's already been called in this conference the nice guy syndrome. Okay, understand, nice guys do not make good men. If you're going to be a good man, you have to be okay with people thinking you are a bad man from time to time. Because men are inevitably called to do hard things, to do things that might be unpopular, to take stands that might be unpopular, to do things that are risky. We're called to speak truth with firmness and directness in an age that does not like that, that wants more effeminate, indirect speech or wants you to dance around things. We've got to lead with wisdom and decisiveness. There's, why do we have a leadership crisis? Really, because nothing's more offensive than a real leader. Leadership is going to offend people because if you're really leading, you know, some of our leaders today, they lead from behind. So they just kind of, they, they see which way the prevailing winds are blowing. Then they say, oh, let's go this direction. Think about Obama on gay marriage. You know, why did Obama in his second term suddenly discover the rightness of gay marriage? Well, it's because the polling changed, okay? Why did the riots finally stop over the course of the summer? Well, because the polling changed, okay? That's leading for, that's not leadership, okay? We are called to be leaders. Men are called to build families and civilizations, to build that little civilization of your family so you can contribute to the wider civilization to build that little kingdom of your family so you can contribute to the wider kingdom of God. That's what God wants us to do. So how do we do this? How do we become better men? How do we build better patriarchs? Well, it's interesting. Scripture again and again focuses really on two areas in a man's life, his work and his wife. That's there in Genesis 2. What are the two things that really stand out? Adam's given a job, and then he's given a bride. What is the book of Proverbs about? Well, it's really about a man's work and a man's wife. These are the two areas that, are, um, that, that Proverbs has so much uh, to say about. So let's talk about each one of these really briefly. We've got to recover a faithful, biblical, creational vision for what manhood is about, for what manly work is about. Men are defined by their work. Okay, when you meet somebody, when you meet another man, the first thing you want to know is, what do you do? Okay? Because that, that work, the work that we do, defines who we are. When David was on his deathbed, he said to Solomon, in a famous passage, be a man. 
to be strong, be courageous, be a man. Well, what, what did that mean in that context? Well, it means get to work. That's the, when, when David says be a man, he's really saying get to work. Go build the temple. I've gathered up the supplies. Now go engage in this glorious project, this glorious job you've been given to do of building the temple. A man's glory is found in his work. 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says, man is the image and glory of God. Okay, I've been thinking about starting a website called It's Glorious to Be a Man. It's good to be a man, but you know, it's also glorious to be a man. God is a worker, and man images God and reveals God's glory in his life when he works faithfully. Man, your work is an expression of your glory. It's, it's a central way in which you image God. Proverbs 20, verse 29, the glory of young men is their strength. The glory of old men is their gray hair. Okay, that gray hair, of course, is, is a sign of wisdom. So really, what is this passage saying? Masculine glory comes in two forms, strength and wisdom. But what are strength and wisdom for? You know, strength for the young man, wisdom for the old man. Well, strength and wisdom are the twin keys that man needs for taking dominion and subduing the earth. Why is wisdom so crucial? Because wisdom unlocks the reality of the creation. It's like creation is a door, and wisdom is the key that allows us to open it and understand the creation, how the creation works, how God designed the world to work. That's what creation is. It's recognizing the patterns built into God's creation and God's providence. Okay? So young men have strength. They can use their strength to transform the world through their work. Old men, maybe once your strength, strength starts to fade some, uh, you have wisdom to compensate for it. You can use that wealth of experience you have to continue transforming the creation. Now, again, because of feminism, men have been weakened in both of these areas. We don't have the strength. We don't have the wisdom we ought to have. You know, it is, uh, it's well known that sometimes women will test men, you know, like in, in, in a, in a, in a boyfriend-girlfriend relationship or even in a marriage, a woman will test a man in some way. And it's not necessarily wrong for her to do so. She could do so in a disrespectful way, but actually it's just kind of an instinctual kind of thing. And this is well known. It's been documented. Christians have talked about this. Non-Christian uh, people have talked about this as well. A woman will test a man, you know, maybe push back on something and, and, and see how, uh, you know, see whether or not he's got any backbone. Because she figures if he can't stand up to her, who can he stand up to? And she needs to know, is he going to be a, a, a real protector to her? Okay. Well, in a way, feminism has been a civilization-wide test for men that men in our civilization have failed miserably. Feminism has been the great test, and we men have failed it. And as a result, we have squandered our strength and our wisdom. The result of feminism, its effect on men, is the feminization of men. And so again, many men today seem to think that there is virtue in losing. They want to be seen as harmless. They want to be seen as of no threat to the enemies of God's kingdom. They'll say, yes, the Christian man is a loser, but at least he's a good loser. At least he's good at losing. We're not called to lose. We're called to win. And, and, and you start to get that victory by ruling over your own household well. So many men today are unfit to lead their households because they're weak, they're cowardly, they're docile, they're servile, they're, again, effeminate. Every man today needs to make it his aim to kill any remaining effeminacy in his personality. I, I, I love the quote. I, I talked about this with Dan. He used that John Owen quote, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. 
And I've used that quote before in sermons and so forth. But I want to say to men specifically, be killing effeminacy or effeminacy will be killing you. Just one or the other. The men in Scripture who are celebrated for their manhood are courageous. Sometimes their exploits come on the field of battle, but certainly not always. They demonstrate their true worth by their competency and skill, by their courage and conviction, by their sacrifice and service. Their lives portray Christ in both His humble, meek, sacrificial death on the cross and in His triumphant, kingly, glorious, victorious, conquering resurrection. So many men today, when they say, we want to apply the gospel to manhood, what they mean is the cross. And they never get to the resurrection part. Okay? True men, faithful men, godly men, will represent Christ. They will image Christ in both his sacrificial death on the cross and in his victorious, dominion-taking resurrection. And so a godly man's not just humble, he's also confident. A godly man's not just compassionate, he's also strong. Men who are people pleasers, men who are simps, or white knights, or pushovers, men who cry out peace, peace when there is no peace because they are afraid of confrontation, men like that are not going to solve our issues. Men like that don't change the world. Men like that aren't going to solve our issue because men like that are the issue. So what do men need to do? Well, again, I think it's very simple. It's very mundane. Again, think about the creation account, the creation of man in Genesis. God creates the man and gives him a job to guard and to work the garden. God gives him work to do right away. In fact, it's interesting. He's got a job before he has a wife. That's how integral man is. That's how integral work is to manhood. Men are made for subduing the earth. We are designed for dominion. And men, that means you need to learn skills and competencies that will enable you to produce things of value. Do not over-spiritualize manhood. I've seen so many books about manhood that only talk about the virtues men should display. And usually there's those virtues related to the cross and not the resurrection. But they have nothing to say about how man engages with the creation, with the created order. And these books are basically manuals on how to be a Gnostic. How to be a Gnostic male. But we're not Gnostics, we're Christians. We're going to engage with the creation. Our version of manhood has to intersect with reality. You cannot be good at being a man unless you're good at work. And your work is going to engage you with the world around you. you know, sometimes this is called the burden of performance. Men must be trained for dominance, for dominion, to rule some realm in the creation, that realm that God assigns to you, to rule there. So what are you good at? What has God gifted you to do? Where can you demonstrate mastery? What are your ambitions, your drives? Where can you make your mark? Again, part of man's glory is doing his work with excellence. Proverbs 22.9, do you see a man skillful in his work? He will stand before kings craftsmanship, quality work, discipline and skilled work is glorious and it will be rewarded. Not just when you stand before kings, but when you stand before the king of kings. And you want to hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. You did a great job with those welds that you made. You did a great job fixing the transmission 
on that Ford pickup truck. You did a great job planting that garden. These are the th God cares about these things. We have to care about them as well. Too many men settle for mediocrity. Being competent something more than video games is crucial. You know, this, this is how you can think about it. You know, when you think about competency and skill, and, and you men need to be growing in skills as much as you can, expanding your skill set, stacking one skill on top of another. You know, think about uh, the lines from Hank William Jr.'s song, A Country Boy Can Survive. <laughs> Why does he survive? Because he's got skills. So get yourself some skills. And let me tell you this too, especially young men, uh, girls who are smart are drawn to a man who is competent, a man who has skills. I saw a tweet the other day, somehow this popped up in my Twitter feed, and obviously this is from, from some you know, conservative young woman. She tweeted, and I quote, men who can fix things are hot. Okay? Her words, not mine. But that tells you, that tells you something about what women find attractive in a man. It's a man who can take dominion, a man who can rule. So men, get some competency, get some skills, be productive, add value to the world. That's dominion, that's rule. Again, the essence of manhood is dominion, and taking dominion requires a work ethic and wisdom. Work ethic plus wisdom equals dominion. Strength plus skills equals subduing the earth. And that's what we're called to. It's interesting, did you know that men, when they retire from their careers, suffer very high rates of depression? There's nothing comparable for women when they retire, uh, but for men, obviously, this is an issue because a man's sense of identity is so tied into what he does. It's your work that gives you your identity. You know, you're being that provider, you know, that we've talked about. Okay, but remember, Adam in Genesis 2 is not just given a job, he's also given a wife, and of course, eventually, he's given children. And Adam is clearly the head of his wife, he is the head of his household. Now, one thing I find interesting, when pastors today preach on marriage, you know, what they really drive home is that husbands are to love their wives as Christ loves the church. That's beaten into every husband who goes to church. Love your wife like Christ loves the church. And all the emphasis put on love. And of course, then all the emphasis is put on being a servant to her because Jesus serves the church, so you should, you should serve your wife. And, and I don't disagree with that, obviously. I do think men should love their wives as Christ loves the church, and I think that means serving our wives, absolutely. But we need to understand there's more to this. Husbands are to do more than love. Or we have to understand that love includes features that are often neglected. Men are not just to love their wives, they are to lead their wives and to rule their wives. And if that word rule rankles your sensibilities, you're out of touch with Scripture. Because Scripture is very clear. Men are to rule their households, men are to rule their wives. Man's vision for his household should define the culture of his household. Yet his family is a ship and he is the captain. His wife is, is the first mate, but he is the captain. And he is the one who has to steer it in the direction he wants to go. Men, you've got the testosterone. God put that in you to equip you for leadership. So lead. God has designed you for leadership. You know, one thing that really concerns me is, uh, you know, when I go to a wedding and the officiant uses what I call gender-neutral vows. Maybe you've seen this. You know, so the husband and wife make the exact same promises to one another. Uh, in more traditional wedding liturgies, liturgies, the vows are asymmetrical. So 
the, the, the differing duties of each spouse will be reflected in the promises that they make. And so, for example, the bride will promise to obey and submit. And that word submit, I think, needs to be in there. That's the Bible's word. And the groom will promise to love and to cherish. And so you see these different roles that the husband and wife have. The husband's job is to die for his wife, and the wife's job is to give him something worth dying for. Most men should not think of marriage and family life as a choice, like, should I get married or not? But as a calling. The question is not, should I get married, but what's her name? Make a covenantal commitment to a woman, and then build your little empire with her, your, your, your kingdom, you know, your miniature kingdom, that they can contribute to the kingdom of God. Nothing brings out the masculinity of men more than embracing this leadership role in marriage and in family. Nothing's harder than doing this. Nothing's harder than doing family life the right way. But nothing is more rewarding or joyous. Nothing is more culturally transformative. You young men who are thinking about your future, go get married and build a family. No matter how hard it is, I guarantee you, you will not regret it. Our culture is in crisis, and it is a crisis with many sides. Our civilization seems to be collapsing all around us. What is to be done? Well, you know, Charles Spurgeon, uh, in his day in England, faced a number of different crises, some in the church, some outside of the church. And this prince of preachers thundered out, now is the hour for the man. Where is the man for the hour? Now is the hour for the man. Where is the man for the hour? My hope and prayer for all of you men here is that you will be the man for the hour. That you will be the man for the hour in your family, in your church, in your wider community, in your country. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you. We thank you for making us male and female in your image for giving masculine glories to men and feminine glories to women. Father, I pray for the men gathered here that we would embrace the calling that you have given to us in your word and in our creational design. I pray that we would be God-fearing men because if we're not, we're sure to fear the world. I pray that you would make us sacrificial. I pray that you would make us strong. I pray that you would make us humble and confident. Father, I pray that you would do these things that we might be the solution to the crises afflicting our culture that you might raise up through your church a new generation of men who understand dominion, who know how to protect and provide, who know how to lead and rule, who have strength and who have wisdom. Father, we pray that you would do these things, that you might be glorified. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the ultimate model of manhood. We thank you for his triumphant and victorious death on the cross, for his resurrection on the third day, as he defeats all of your enemies, all the enemies of his kingdom, sin, death, and Satan. May we share in his victory. May we advance his kingdom by the way we live our lives. We pray this in his strong name. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you want to find out more, check out our website at trinityreformedkirk.com. That's trinityreformedkirk.com. And if you want to make sure you don't miss out on any of these talks as they come out each month, go to strongholdconference.com and sign up for the free newsletter. 
That's StrongholdConference.com. Thanks.